1: Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor.
2: Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, talking to you here uh, from the city of New York, Queens, actually. And if I've got it right, it's the 24th day of November 2017. I um, do want to tell you that I, that I uh, author the newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Uh, you can subscribe to it by going to miningstocks.com. Uh You can also um, call our office at 718-457-1426 to sign up for our letter. Also, consider, um suggest you consider subscribing to Chen Lin's letter. Uh, uh, chenpix.com is the place to go what is Chen buying what is Chen selling stellar track record especially in the biotech space as well as energy and he also uh, has some interesting things uh, that he covers in the the resource sector as well we do want to thank each of you for listening to this show and we do want to thank our sponsors for making the show economically viable our sponsors for this week's show Bonterra Resources, New Range Gold Corp., Klondike Gold Corp., RN Resources, Novo Resources, and Genesis Metals Corp. Regarding our sponsors, some of you no doubt uh, are following at Novo Resources. They've been a frequent guest uh, on this show. It is my top pick. It is a stock that I have owned uh, for some time, over three or four years, and I haven't sold a share since it peaked at $9. It's uh, today trading at about five and a quarter. It's had quite a Quite a hit taken to it in the last couple of trading sessions seems to be finding some legs today. Uh, but uh, you know, if you're if you really are following this, I would suggest you might want to consider subscribing to my letter because I do cover it, talk about it almost every week, and I also pass along some of the ideas of some of the other people that follow this very closely, like John Kaiser and Bob Moriarty and and others. Who who follow this uh, this story very closely? So let's Jay uh, go to miningstocks.com to sign up for my letter. My letter, just a little plug for my own work. Um, today's show I've titled Saudi Arabia and Other Geopolitical Gold Market Shockers for 2018. Christopher Martinson, Peter Talman, Michael Oliver, all return guests today. If uh, if the Saudi Arabia situation doesn't worry you you 're not paying attention, well, those were the words uh, that were written by Chris Martinson in his article, a recent article uh, that implied that the value of the dollar may be facing a grave threat in two thousand and eighteen as a result of us of a uh, well many things, but in part, the souring relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia at the same time, a warming of relationships between Saudi Arabia, Russia, and China is certainly taking place. Uh, If you're paying any attention to the news, without Saudi Arabia and the petrodollar, what if anything can keep the US dollar from collapsing? Moreover, as I think uh, Chris may tell us, Russia has made some astounding technological advances in warfare that may be the reason that they have suddenly gained strength and seemingly the upper hand in the Middle East. Well, these are all issues that are very likely to impact the value of the dollar. Uh, according to Chris anyway, and so if you are an American, your, investment in, your investments in 2018 uh, may actually change quite a bit. You may have to refocus a lot, and that's, those are some of the things we're going to talk to Chris about. Um, certainly one of the answers to declining dollar is to swap dollars, which are nothing more than IOUs, uh, with zero intrinsic value, in fact, they're only valuable uh, to the extent that other people can pay their debts, well, it stands to reason uh, that companies that can mine real money, like gold and silver, from the ground profitably, uh, and and do so, you know, making profits, uh, they are the companies that should do very, very well uh, when the dollar hits the skid. So Peter Talman, who heads Klondike Gold Corp., will be with me at about a quarter past the hour. Uh, Klondike Gold Corp. is a company that I believe may very well be on to the discovery of a world-class gold deposit in the Yukon. Um, And Peter will be with me to talk about the latest developments with that company, uh, with this year's drill, drill program and other things that are going on with the company. So he'll be with me in just a few minutes. But right now, we're fortunate to have Michael Oliver with me once again. Thanks for joining me, Michael.
3: Hi, Jay. Good to be back.
2: Good to have you as always. Uh, gold was trading at twelve ninety four when I peeked at the screen a little before the show today, around two thirty or so. Really hasn't done much this year. Um, I mean, it hasn't been bad, but it hasn't it hasn't really. It's not been a barn burger, has it? Now, w- what do you see for gold now? I mean, is any any key numbers that you're looking at?
3: Well, above the market, we're only looking at price right now. Uh, <laughs> we normally look at momentum. Mm-hmm. Uh, trend structures you know on oscillators uh, especially long term annual and quarterly they're all all fully positive period exclamation point the only thing that's lagging and normally does lag its own momentum is price price has a uh, if you look at a monthly or weekly chart going back several years you can draw a little line across about uh, 1350 or so and it looks like if you can close a week out up above uh, at or above 1350 the price guys are going to get excited and so we're, uh, gold is consolidating, congesting. Actually, it's had a good up year. You forgot that we closed last year at, at uh, let me see, was it, uh, we're 10% on the year or so. We're, we're yeah, challenging. right. If you, if you put together the close of 2015, gold was mm-hmm. about 10 to 60. Mm-hmm. And it's 23 months later now, okay? And where we are now versus then, and take the S&P, do the same thing where it was at the close of 2015, 23 months later, it's at current levels. S&P is beating gold by about 3%, period. Right. It's hardly a you know a barn burner. And yet yeah. it's the strongest broad index in the world of the developed economies, stronger mm-hmm. than the DAX, stronger than you know, all of them, uh, of the broad indices. Um, and yet it's only several percentage points ahead of gold, yet gold doesn't feel like it's up that much. It is. Uh, yeah. So it, it's, it, it's the nature of the rally in gold. It's been very convoluted, but nevertheless, year over year, it's been good. For, Fifteen was good. Uh, I mean, sixteen was good. Seventeen has been good so far. Um, and I suspect at some point we're just going to leave the S&P behind because I think the S&P is producing right now probably what we looked for about a week and a half ago. We put out a report that was more or less an impulsive report on my part <laughs> without charts. I said, this market needs a spike. Mm-hmm. It had been crawling at a snail's pace for quite a while. Uh, each week, you know, you, you, in fact, you had three weeks in a row where the S and P closed uh, virtually horizontal. And I said, "You need the spike," and it was in the, the twenty four seventies, eighties, that area, uh, twenty five seventy. Excuse me. I said, "You need a spike to disturb the, vo- the lack of volatility, because quite often you can't go down from a quiet top, mm-hmm. assuming you're going to make a top." You can't do that. I'm just talking price right now. Momentum is ripe with numbers below that, you know, if you can start dropping, you'll break short term, you'll break intermediate term, and position yourself for the S&P at the end of this year, such that when you open next quarter, which is like five weeks away, Mm -hmm. uh, next year as well, you're going to hit new numbers, Uh, Mm
4: -hmm.
3: annual momentum trigger numbers, quarterly momentum trigger numbers, Mm -hmm. both of which are jumping up sharply. So any wobble right now from this spike if the spike is exhaustive and exhibits exhaustive traits, namely, once you get it done, you roll over again. Yeah. Uh, then you're in position next year to really quack the S&P uh, mm-hmm. without too much drop. Uh, you know, 4 or 5% correction from these highs puts you in very bad position opening mm-hmm. next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and meanwhile, gold continues to behave. Yes, it's boring. Yes, it, it seems to... Uh, you know, have moments of fear, but here we are in the 1290s Last week we were talking about yeah. twelve eighties, 1280s You know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, other interesting market right now: Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Merc is going to start sure. trading a, f- <laughs> a futures contract on that shortly uh, b- before the end of the year, but it's just short of ten thousand right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it, it's it's quite an interesting phenomenon how it got here. It's like a it's like the dot com bubble about three times faster. <laughs> Straight up, and I strongly suspect there's a lot more things going on with these cryptocurrencies than people give them credit for. Yeah, uh, they are a potential rival to central bank money. Yeah, and they're uh. being accepted worldwide. Uh, <coughs> South Korea the other day just declared no hands off. We're not going to try to regulate or deny the existence of cryptocurrencies. Uh, some governments are trying to do some regulation and so forth, but basically it's it's it's. It's hitting them in the face, and they don't quite, I don't think they intellectually understand themselves what this threat is. Mm -hmm. That is, that if if these become accepted currencies in business transactions more and more Mm -hmm. globally, and I'm Mm -hmm. not just talking Bitcoin, but its competitors, Mm -hmm. uh, that takes away the potency of central bank policy controls over their own money units and their own interest rates of those money units. And in other words, it's a threat to central bank power. And yeah. I think at some point, though, there will be a point where Western central banks in particular, I would say especially U.S. and Japan, are will be inclined to want to do something to stop this because, mm-hmm. uh, it, you know, it, it's a threat to their, their policy power.
2: Yeah, well, it's yeah. going to be really interesting to watch, no question about that. and. uh my way of thinking is that it may pave the way for gold to become money. Yep. Again, with with uh, gold money being a company that we follow very closely on this show, mm-hmm. I follow on my newsletter, they have now combined with Bitgold, they are accepting Bitbo- Bitgold accounts because there's many, uh, a lot of hedge fund guys that want to own Bitgold, but they don't know how to do it. They don't have the infrastructure in place mm-hmm. to protect themselves and so forth. So I think, Michael, this is one, one thing we're going to want to have you talk about some more, hopefully on this show uh, until at least it burns out. So, very interesting. We are out of time, Michael. One last quick word, perhaps.
3: uh, Let's see. We've been positive on crude oil. um, From mid-September, we said it's another, but we've bought it three times over the past two years. uh, Mm -hmm. We've suggested that to our subscribers. Mm -hmm. So, under 50, we were long, and we expected a rally up into the upper 50s. We got out last week or suggested mm-hmm. that, that our subscribers exit. It was 58-60 area we said uh, exit. And I think oil may have had its rally for a while. Uh, I think it will resume again next year, but I think for this year it's probably probably done its thing. Um, it's about All the right. other market. Yeah,
2: go ahead. All right, we'll we have to leave it go at that, Michael. Unfortunately, we okay, are good. out of time. Thanks so much for sharing with us once again. Always great to have you with us. Folks, we've got to go to break now, but when we come back, Peter Talman will be with me he'll talk about Klondike Gold Corp the exciting things going on there perhaps one of the larger gold deposits in the making well we'll have to wait and see let's hear what Peter has to say after the break
5: two hundred million dollars
4: New Range Gold Corps is a Canadian junior explorer, focused on its recently acquired flagship, Pamlico Gold Project, located in Nevada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. Known as one of Nevada's highest-grade gold districts, Pamlico was held by private interests for most of its history and remains largely unexplored. Drilling by New Range is already confirming the legendary grades of the district, with intercepts up to 341 grams gold per tonne. Well-financed with no debt. New ranges unlocking shareholder value at Pamlico and trades under TSX symbol NRG.
1: Now, back to our program.
2: Welcome back turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, JTO, and I'm really glad to have with me once again Peter Talman. Uh, he is the president and CEO of Klondike Gold Corp. Peter's had a number of successes in his career. He's been uh, an exploration geologist uh, for over 35 years, uh, and he's found uh, three deposits. I believe two of them have gone into production. So he has had some success. It's not it's not very often that uh, geologists are able to find one uh, commercial gold, uh, gold or other mineral deposits, but Peter's found three of them. So, uh, very highly esteemed among his uh, among his peers. So, thanks for joining him again, Peter. It's really good to have you with me. Always good. Uh, you know, um, that Klondike gold rush was really something. 1896. How many millions of ounces of gold have been found by uh, the placer gold miners?
0: Yeah. Uh, well, the uh, the unofficial count is 20 million ounces people suspect there was more than that because mm-hmm. back in the day they didn't always report every single <laughs> ounce.
2: <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, uh, I should tell our listeners that Klondike Gold Corp uh, trades in Toronto under the symbol KL. Uh, you can buy it down here in the in the states as I have under the symbol KDKGF selling at about 28 cents Canadian, 23 cents US, something like that around 90 million shares giving a very very small market cap of only 21 million dollars. Well, Peter, I know that the labs are extremely slow in returning assays this year and uh, that's kind of disappointing because I was expecting we'd have a lot, of, a lot of assays to talk about or to look at and maybe some outstanding ones. But but you've learned a lot anyway already this year. Uh, what, what can you tell us uh, about what you've learned so far from this year's drill program?
0: Well, one thing I, I can tell you is that I'm still learning, um, but Beyond the, With the drilling, we've drilled 86 or 8,700 meters, uh, 70 holes all in, of which, as you say, the labs are backed up, and we're still waiting for some 30-plus holes uh, from assay. Uh, but what we've seen and recognized this year and for the first time ever is a, a series of faults that cut our, our district-scale property and all the faults are gold mineralized. Um, and categorically, I wouldn't have been able to say that last year, but I can hmm. now. Um, mm-hmm. And and these faults have considerable strike length, each of them. And and so I, I'm super excited because, yeah, the the, pro, the property has immensely more prospectivity than I ever thought possible.
2: Is that right? Well, I'm looking at a map here. It shows... <laughs> three or four, I guess three faults that you've, that you have confirmed are mineralized with gold, the Bonanza Fault, the Nugget Fault, and the El Dorado Fault, and uh, those are, as I understand it, are those faults are about one to two, what, one, one to two kilometers apart, is that right? They're sort of parallel, pretty much parallel?
0: That's right. And, and there's a fourth one that we've seen now, suspected it a couple of years ago, but we've We've prospected it, uh, found visible gold in outcrop. Um, oh. So there's some assays yet to to come from that. That was really late in the season. That was in late October, early November. Don't have assays back, but the, the fact is, okay, there's another one, and and again, it's about a kilometer away from the Eldorado fault.
2: All right, um, yeah. So that's the the Irish fault. I think you've labeled it, and. It, Peter, it seems to me that you've talked in the past about disseminated gold. That is, the gold outside of these faults themselves, that you've got actually maybe some mineralization between these faults. Is that, is that possible?
0: Uh, it's more so the the, the the faults themselves are a locus for gold mineralization. Um, mm-hmm. Historically, the Klondike is known for quartz veins and super high-grade in quartz veins. Mm-hmm. And really nobody, even talking to the prospectors, nobody's ever even sampled things that might have disseminated gold in them. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're, we've discovered one zone for sure. We've seen it in other places. And, and that's really where the tonnage potential here is. Um, it's relatively low grade, but there's lots of it. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly a place to start to to build something that could become a mine with enough size and and really that leaves us beyond you know if it's low grade that's great uh, and we're trying to find a million ounces in, uh, in a hurry to keep our shareholders mm-hmm. happy Sure. after which point we can start targeting more of the high grade veins which we haven't been drilling really this year anyway
2: Yeah I think you you've noted uh, somewhere in, in our discussions that you've sort of three grade gold grade types that you found and one would be the sort of lower grade. Can you can you talk about that a little bit in terms of your targets? You get really high grade, I guess, in these fault zones. Uh, but but what are your what are your targets here that you're looking at, Peter? Besides the sort of lower grade that you might be able to prove up in a hurry.
0: Well, that's and and that's it really. The the low grade, and i I've, actually I, I've been looking back at our disclosure of assay results previously, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and. What we've seen in our assaying, it looks like something as low as 0.3 grams gold may be recoverable. Now, that's a mm-hmm. forward-looking statement. I have to go and figure that out yet. Yes. But we get broad intervals of 0.3 grams over 100 to 150 meters. Huh. And yeah. that puts a lot of gold in one spot. Um mm-hmm. So as you back it up, so then that's our broad low grade and we have intervals of two up to two and a half grams over 40 meters. Um, and that's kind of the Lone Star Ridge from the low end to the high end of the low grade. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have these intermediate grades where we have intermediate widths and intermediate grades that's five to seven grams over 10 to 15 meters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's our nugget prospect. And then we have the super high-grade effectively quartz veins with, with coarse clots of gold in it. Um, and the one was our elder or our gay gulch um, showing, which is 76 three ounces. Call it three ounces over three meters. Mm-hmm. So, wow. so pick one. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and basically the, the philosophy that has evolved now is, hey, if we go and find lots of low-grade then when we need some high-grade, we can go, even if we can't find it within the zone that we're drilling, we can go next door on one of these other faults where we know there's high-grade and veins and drill that.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, very exciting, very prospective, for sure. I mean, there's a, now? I know that, I've, I don't know if you've talked about a major uh, thrust, uh, a Rabbit Creek thrust or something like that. Have you talked about that publicly?
0: Um alluded to it. I finally got around to naming it because, you know, the thrust there just kept it didn't really make much sense. But that the underlying thrust is the conduit that controlled the gold. And mm-hmm. that's the, the first order structure. So if you're always looking for a first order structure mm-hmm. um, that's the locus for the the, in a regional sense where the gold mineralization is around and then these Bonanza Fault, El Dorado, Nugget, and Irish Faults are coming off, are splayed mm-hmm. off that thrust mm-hmm. and that's where the gold is being precipitated, is in these second order structures. Um, yeah, so makes... Regionally now, we've seen for the Rabbit A, I've named it the Rabbit Creek Fault and it basically is in it. it it's why Bonanza Creek, which is the richest creek in the Klondike in terms of alluvial gold placer, it's why that creek is there. It's there because the Rabbit Creek thrust was there. And we've traced it now the, well, we think we've traced it the entire um, length of our 55-kilometer-long property. (laughs) So...
2: Yeah, I was going to say I want my listeners to to realize the magnitude of this target that you're looking at here. I mean, it's it's not as if uh, it's a small thing. Fifty five kilometers, and this Rabbit Creek thrust. Uh, you believe the way it looks anyway, from from your work, that it extends fifty five kilometers, and as I understand it, sort of daylight's to the north, to the north uh, northeast, I think, and then sort of dips to the southwest. Is do I have that right? The structure?
0: That's correct.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yep. And so this massive...
0: That was, uh, yeah. That, that last time, last interview we did here, and I, I did allude to it then, and uh-huh. said, hey, I'm excited because we see this as potential. And just more or less after I hung up the last time we jumped, we asked, uh, we had a field crew for magnetics to get out and test a long strike from Lone Star, so basically trying to trace the Rabbit Creek thrust and the Bonanza thrust off to the east. Um, and I just saw... I physically just got the data from a 250 line kilometers of mag yesterday as a paper copy. Oh. And in the paper copy, I can, I'm looking at it going, you know what, I can see, I can see the structures. Wow. Um, and so that's part proof that it continues all the way down and is continuous 55 kilometers away. So we now have another 10 or 15 kilometers of strike length where I can put my finger on it and go, it's right there. And that's going to be the target, one of the principal targets first off next year.
2: All right, let me ask you, Peter, in the the Lone Star area, which is to the northern end of this 55-kilometer structure, you... Uh, are, are you going to start drilling in there now this year in 2018, looking into next year's drill program, to try to to drill up some tonnage there next year with some gold and a, a resource possibly as early as next year? Or when might we expect a resource?
0: The, the, the re, I'm getting that question a lot. And like a, a, re, a proper resource should be, I, I, uh, I will use a rule of thumb, it should be based on 100,000 to as much as 200,000 meters of drilling and it's concentrated in an area of mineralization. And mm-hmm. what we've drilled total since we started is 15,000 meters. Mm. Yeah. Um, so we've done an enormous amount of work, I think, in the three years since I became president, but we're nowhere near doing the volume necessary to produce a, a proper resource. So, and I'm, I'm reluctant to, A, promise one quickly, and I'm reluctant to try to do one mickey mouse without sure. enough information
2: so all right fair enough well peter we only have two minutes left uh i'm, I'm going to let you just talk uh, so that i don't take any time what do you want people to know yet about you've, you're doing some metallurgy uh you've got some infrastructure improvements are in already a pretty good situation but just tell our people what they need to know with it with the next two minutes
0: um well uh, i guess just to fall back a bit we have several billionaires, uh, mining billionaires, as shareholders. um, And so we are well supported by them. Uh, We are fully funded for 2018, um, drilling, whatever we're going to do. And it'll be an expansion of the work that we did in 2017. So, you know, we've drilled 8,600 meters this year, probably going to do more next year. Um, The milestone, though for us, is going to be putting together all the information that we collected this year into one coherent model that encompasses the entire district. And, you know, I appreciate that Rabbit Creek thrust is 55 kilometers long. <laughs> it implies that the Bonanza, Bonanza Fault, Eldorado Fault, uh, Nugget Fault are also all 55 kilometers long. It gives, you know, theoretically anyway, hundreds of kilometers of target, um, and seemingly, wherever we've tested it, it's all gold mineralized. So right. I think it's going to be the problem is going to be one of discipline and trying to focus on an area, get our million ounce threshold, which will proceed with expiration hopefully, and then from there move on into the future and try to expand that. So it's really exciting and there's lots of work to do. Um, by March, February, March, we should have some nice cartoons and maps and sections and everything done so everyone publicly can have a look at it
2: All right, Peter we're going to have to leave it go at that I'm really excited about it I hope we can talk to you in the future about it Uh, but we are out of time right now thank you so much for being with us well folks that is all the time we have next week Jeff Clark of goldsilver.com will be with us as well as Brian Groves from Genesis Metals and hopefully Michael Oliver as well until then goodbye and God's blessings to you
4: Novo Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Novo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in australia A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike Gold Rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow klondikegoldcorp.com. Bonterra Resources, a Canadian exploration company, is aggressively expanding its high-grade Gladiator Gold deposit in Quebec, Canada. In 2017, Bonterra raised $40 million and attracted strategic investors Eric Sprott Kinross, Kirkland Lake Gold, and New York-based VanEck Gold Fund. Bonterra is focused on updating its 43-101 resource model in 2018 and will incorporate up to an additional 100,000-plus meters of drilling where the dimensions of the Gladiator Gold Deposit has been expanded to date nearly 500%. Bonterra trades in Canada under the symbol BTR and in the U.S. under B-O-N-X-F.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have with me once again, Christopher Martinson. Chris holds a PhD uh, from Duke and an MBA from Cornell. He is an economic researcher and futurist specializing in energy and resource depletion, and he's the co-founder of PeakProsperity.com along with Adam Taggart. Thanks for joining me again, Chris. Oh, Jay, it's my pleasure to be back with you. It's always good to have you you know before we get started, let me strongly suggest uh, to my listeners that they bookmark peak market or peak prosperity uh, dot com that's the right place right peak that's, prosperity yep, com? that's it and and you're very active there. you provide a blog uh, there's some au- visual audio visual stuff there as well that's very valuable uh, so uh, Chris, I want to talk to you today about an article that I picked up from your website a couple of weeks ago regarding the importance of changes taking place in Saudi Arabia and how that may impact investors in the United States. you know That was a November 10th article titled, If the Saudi Arabia situation doesn't worry you, you're not paying attention, end of quotes. And you started out the article by by saying, um, and I quote, while turbulent during the best of times, gigantic waves of change are now sweeping across the Middle East. The magnitude is such that the impact on the global price of oil, as well as world markets, is likely to be enormous. Then you stated, and I quote, a dramatic geopolitical realignment with Saudi Arabia is in full swing this month, This month, that is upending many decades of established order. So my question is, you know, of course, we have all heard of the, the house arrests that are taking place. I think, well, I don't know if we all have, but it's been in the news. Uh, the princes in Saudi Arabia from the old guard. What, what can you tell us about that event, as well as how it fits into the greater geopolitical order in the Middle East and
5: beyond? Well, I wish I could do this in a single sentence. It, it's, it's so complex that, of course, some context is really essential here. And, and anybody could be forgiven for not understanding Saudi politics. Even people who, who examine it very closely have a hard time keeping up because, we're talking about a, a ruling family, a dynasty with uh, that's been very prolific. There's four thousand princes, uh, at least two thousand of them hold significant assets or power, and it's really a sort of a you know the Corleones mobsters meets Game of Thrones intrigue. You know, so it's mm-hmm. it's 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 really hard to get your arms around, but but just to understand there's a lot of money involved. There's a lot of ego involved. There, there are a lot of participants involved. And so there was a, a major realignment in shakeup. Now, this is normal. You get shakeups and things like this. But the person who came into charge, uh, his son, is Mohammed bin Sultan, and, uh, who we can shorten up to MBS, Mohammed bin Sultan. Mm-hmm. MBS is uh, young, in his 30s, young 30s, and uh, very, very uh, uh, aggressive in terms of how he wants to reshape the country. Now, a lot of what's being talked about in the U.S. press uh, is very unfortunately focusing on, I think, the wrong angle, which is that he's trying to make his country more progressive and, and bring yes. it out of the oil age into some new magic thing, which, I don't know, they'll manufacture, hopefully, sand into something. Um, <laughs> but uh, But the truth is that what actually happened was we have to rewind this story just a little bit and understand that 1973, Yom Kippur War, uh, United States supported Israel. The Arab nations, of course, were very unhappy with all of that, got the oil embargo, a lot of upset about that. Well, in 1974, Saudi Arabia was thinking, well, geez, you know, we still like to sell our oil and we'd really like to, we, we need help with security because they were still sort of a a founding dynasty at that point in time. They had a lot of military needs. But they couldn't be seen coming to the United States to sell their oil. And we were their number one, by far, number one customer at that point in time. So anyway, backdoor deal gets struck for 40 years. The United States and Saudi Arabia hold secret that at that moment, Saudi Arabia had struck a deal to buy U.S. treasuries. And we were going to hold them for them in a special secret account. And uh, no conspiracy. This is all public record now. Mm-hmm. So that all made sense, right? Saudi Arabia wanted to sell their oil, but they didn't, didn't want to be seen selling it to the United States openly because it would be kind of politically embarrassing because of Israel, all that. So mm-hmm. at any rate, that's all been happening for a long time. And that enshrined something I'm sure your listeners are familiar with called the petrodollar. Sure. With Saudi Arabia is the cornerstone of this idea, which is that if you want to trade in oil, you need dollars. Which is great for the United States. We export dollars and people need them because they want to buy oil. And those dollars get recycled back into our capital markets because the other part of that deal with Saudi Arabia was not just that they're going to sell oil to us, not just to us for dollars, not just that, but they're going to buy treasuries, but they're going to recycle other parts of their proceeds into the U.S. markets. That includes real estate, equities, the whole nine yards. So, Saudi Mm -hmm. Arabia owns a big, giant chunk of the U.S., long-standing arrangement. It's been great. Well, I don't know, you know, uh, your listeners will probably remember this, too. It was in 2016, Congress was going to pass this crazy little law that was going to release a 28-page document that was going to finger... A bunch of Saudi nationals, in particular government officials, f- it as complicit with the whole 9 11 fiasco. Right. right, and that mm-hmm. was going to open them up uh, potentially to lawsuits by families, and of course, the United States has a long history of filing suits against other countries inside U.S. court systems, getting huge judgments, and having the Treasury Department and State Department, uh, you know, strong arm uh, those those results. So. Saudi Arabia was upset at this. Obama had to fly over, and this is at the tail end. I think he's, you know, the elections already happened. It's somewhere around November or December. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he flies over there to smooth everything over. Well, he must have done a bad job because it was not March of that same year that Saudi Arabia goes and trundles over to Beijing, brings a Mm -hmm. huge entourage. I was talking with uh, the former president of a major oil company, and he was there at the time, and he said, You wouldn't believe it, Chris. They flew all these 747s in, two numbers for you. They brought six fully armored Rolls Royces with them, and they brought <laughs> 150 cooks just to feed everybody else who came, right? <laughs> right? So they're doing this. And why are they doing this, Jay? Because they inked about $70 billion of deals during that meeting, which, as you know or anybody knows, you don't just go over and ink $70 billion in deals. Those deals no. have already been negotiated. They were. This was sort of the... The, the inking, the signing part, but they'd already they'd already been decided beforehand. So that's move number one. Move number two, October of that same year of 2017, first time in history. We have a giant uh, entourage like that from Riyadh heading over and going to Moscow. So now there we have Saudi Arabia and Russia getting together. Again, 70 $65, 70000000000 billion of deals inked, and it was the breadth of those deals that really caught me Technology, healthcare, for nuclear reactors, and most impressively for the Soviet, uh, sorry, for the Russian uh, S-400 anti-aircraft missile system, they're most advanced. Now, they're not going to sell that to just anybody. And, you know, Russia has been on the other side of Saudi Arabia in the whole Syrian conflict. Sure. Russia's also been supporting Iran, and Iran has the S-300 missile system. So all this stuff is happening, but two things come from this. One, the United States is no longer at the dance floor with with Saudi Arabia, and two, they're inking military deals with China and with Russia, saying they've turned, they've pivoted away from the United States. This is big, big, big news. It tells us that Saudi Arabia has read the future and has decided that its future doesn't lie with the United States at this point, that they need to begin making other friends in the world and they've done that now with a total of over uh, close to $200 billion of deals because China came back for a second, second drink just a month ago and inked another $70 billion. So they're off to the races. You know, if, if they're dating, they, they've already decided to move in together. They're selecting furniture and, and sofas and carpets and things. Wow. So this is a big deal. This upends 45 years of oil diplomacy, and it's happening and it's not being talked about in the U.S. press. It's not being talked about, but I have to think,
2: well, I want to ask you, to what extent do you think this agreement for Saudi Arabia to buy treasuries, to to recycle their dollars into treasuries? and And I think also OPEC was maybe required also to demand dollars for payments as a whole. Uh, and, and so you know I can see, Chris, how this would go beyond just United States and Saudi Arabia uh, if the if the whole world, if the exporting countries, oil countries, we're demanding dollars instead of their own currency, some of their currency, then let's say a country like Bolivia that has to import oil would need dollars. And, um, you know, I mean, the, it would just be sort of like the whole, if they wanted to buy bananas from, well, I, so let's say a Northern European country wanted to buy bananas from Bolivia, they would have to get dollars to buy those bananas from Bolivia because Bolivia would need the dollars to buy their oil, right?
5: That's correct. So a number of things happen when you have the petrodollar. It yes. means that any importing nation needs to have dollars to buy right. those with, right? Now, again, of course, capital markets are what they are. The oil exporters could, I don't know, take those dollars and sell them instantly for Bolivian currency and, or if they wanted to. But yeah. but the truth is that since two thousand. To, to about 2016, which is the last year I have data, about seven trillion petrodollars were accumulated by oil exporters. Mm. And it's just an astonishing pile. So what would have happened if those oil exporters didn't have to uh, or, or you know, accumulate seven trillion excess US dollars? What would have been different? Well, US interest rates would have been a lot higher. All kinds of things would have sure. been very different. And so you know, in this story, we have to ask, okay, well, if these, if the petrodollar is dying, what's it being replaced with? Because you don't just send your oil cargo off for nothing, and that's where the second part of this story is interesting. Where I'm sure your listeners have heard that mm-hmm. China opened an oil bourse where you can trade futures for oil denominated in yuan, their onshore right. currency, right? Plus, you know, nobody really actually wants to accumulate too many yuan more than you would need for trading because China has closed capital markets. You can't buy Chinese government bonds. You know, they foreign direct investment, very constrained. So what do you do? Well, that's where China also uh, joined that with the idea that you could take any yuan that you had. And you could use them on the Shanghai Gold Exchange, buy gold, and they would allow that to leave the shore. So that's a, they opened the capital market, but for gold, of all things, which feels like a little poke in the eye at the, at the system, if you will. But that's where they decided to open their capital markets. And by all accounts, uh, this is going uh, really well. And this, this makes a lot of sense, but you have to understand where we really are in the oil story, and people in the United States really are very deluded because we just get this—it's literally propaganda about how amazing shale is and it's changed everything and it'll be changed forever. It's absolutely wrong. <laughs> and yeah, well, I it's wanna, a big story. I want to explore that with you, Chris, because I know you've you've
2: done an awful lot of work there on that. But so I didn't—I wasn't aware that China has agreed then in these in these instances to allow gold to leave the Chinese shores. Yes, that's how I understand it. Oh, okay, well, that's that's very important. Certainly, I mean, uh, you could understand why Saudi Arabia may be a bit hesitant to accept yuan right now, but if they could exchange them into gold, uh, that's another story, of course. And it's very interesting because it seems to me the petrodollar really replaced gold in a sense, in the sense that, you know, I've always wondered, how could the dollar retain its value when we went off the gold standard way back then, and I'm old enough to remember it, I'm older than you are, I remember it very well reading the new york times the following day and just being amazed at how could the dollar retain any value if it had nothing behind it well of course it has had it's had oil and it's had the u.s military Mm -hmm. Uh, some people believe that that's been a very important part of the equation as well to send a signal to the saddam hussein's of this world or the qaddafi's of this world or anybody else that may decide they don't want dollars anymore
5: Do do you buy that I do. And, and, and this is where the story gets really fascinating and also a little confusing for me because there are elements inside the United States government, call it the shadow government, or maybe not even all that shadow, that are very keen to pick a fight with Russia. Mm-hmm. and uh, i 'm confused by that because you know the United States has had a very, very powerful military as long as you were going up against Saddam, who was sure. you know, hobbled by two decades of sanctions, or you know you 're going to go beat up on a on a Libya or you know with no air force or whatever that 's one story, but it 's a very different story when you pick a fight with somebody like Russia who has a tiny military budget compared to ours, but they didn't pour their money into building aircraft carriers. They poured mm-hmm. their money into missile technology. And, oh, mm-hmm. my goodness, their missile systems, if people haven't studied them, take a look. It's it's space-age, secondary, you know, the, for instance, just not to get too wonkish, but their Zircon missile system, these things are flying at Mach 5 or 6 unless they go mm-hmm. exo-atmospheric, in which case they fly at Mach 8. They come in wow. a swarm, and of the swarm, one of them flies high, like about 130000 Thousand feet and coordinates all the other ones, huh. and the rest of them are coming five six feet off the deck. And the kinetic energy on these alone is enough to tear a ship in half. But they put a warhead on for good measure. If the one that's high up gets lost, another one will fly up and take its place. Um, and there's literally no possible way to stop a swarm that comes in. And these things have what's called vectored thrust technology, meaning they don't steer with fins, which get torn off at those speeds. They steer with a, a nozzle. And so they can do crazy maneuvers at the end, pulling 50, 60 Gs if they need to, and fly crazy patterns. And all of our anti-missile missile technology is is geared on, you know, you calculate a trajectory, you know where something's going to be, and you shoot something there. It's, it's like skeet shooting. Well, huh. skeet shooting gets a lot harder when the skeet can perform evasive maneuvers right at the end. Um, so My goodness. Uh, I have a hard time when they don't, you know. So, um, but, so this is the technology we're up against, and I, I go through all of this simply to say, That if the United States goes up against a foe that has that technology, we're going to discover that ships, no matter how sophisticated they are, are metal boxes looking for a reason to sink. And the minute that happens, the very minute that happens, the entire calculus changes because the world suddenly discovers that power is now projected by people who can walk to places rather than people who have to float there. The United States has a wonderful advantage. We've got two giant long coastlines. It protects us. It's wonderful. It's also a flaw if you're trying to be a global military empire. And the only way you can get, you know, a a battalion, an armored battalion from point A to point B is to put it on a ship. So I, I think that the calculus would change very, very rapidly. I believe it's part of the reason. That Saudi Arabia did its pivot. This is speculation on my part, but Uh remember, everything in Syria was kind of going one way until there was a day when Russia announced that they were bringing in the S-400 system and they parked it right there in the center of Syria and suddenly the entire dynamic changed. Because the United States and NATO couldn't fly over the country anymore. We did not want to go up against that missile system. So so I think Saudi Arabia looked at that and said, oh, my goodness, you brought in your missiles. It changed everything. It threw the war against us. And we lost that. But instead of sort of nursing those wounds, uh, MBS pivoted very quickly and said, oh, Calculus has now changed, and sh- very shortly after, they were striking deals um, with two brand-new partners. It's really big news. It really is. It,
2: it really is big news, Chris, and this is just another example of the kind of big news that we're not, being, we're not hearing as Americans. It's out there for people like you who dig you know, with the Internet and everything available, but most people aren't aware of this at all. Uh, and and you have to think, you know. I mean, we, I was talking to uh, uh, Mr. Rickards uh, in the past. You uh, know, his his view, at least a year or so ago, was that our military was still strong enough, and that the only way these countries could really compete would be through currency wars. You know, to do the to do what you just talked about, they are doing with the, with the do- with gold and their own currencies and their own uh, trading infrastructure that they put together. Um, but what i 'm hearing from you is that that 's not all they have, and certainly our military then is aware of that right i mean our our, our CIA better be our our Pentagon better be aware of that what you 're just telling us
5: yeah, I trust the Pentagon is aware of that um, of course they they 're fantastic at what they do um, and uh, but the people who are actually going to be the ones who would act you know force the military to get into a conflict would be the neocons, who who I think everybody who's paying attention understands these are crazy individuals. They don't understand um, force moderation. They don't understand anything other than just projecting wild, overbearing force. And that's great if you're up against a a heavily outmatched foe. But just to put this in context, look, still roughly 40% of the world's oil that's exported, which is all the stuff we care about, right? Um, Mm -hmm. That still goes through the Strait of Hormuz, which is a two-mile-wide gap over there in between the, the, the isthmus that, that separates uh, Iran from the rest of, of those Arabian countries on the other side um, these missile systems I just talked about, if they were operational and by the way they can fire from, the Zircon's interesting because it fires from any platform it fires from everything, anything that, that anybody has, it comes off of trucks, subs planes, two different types of planes mm. maybe, uh, you know, you name it, it doesn't matter uh, so if those were in place over there and we have every reason to think they probably are the entire Persian Gulf is off limits, right? There's, you can't have a, you can't take the Seventh Fleet. It has to be, and by the way, these things have a range of around four to five hundred kilometers. So you have to like mm. take this and move it really far away, you know. Mm. And that's even trusting that you know they're not going to put some on a speedboat and take it, you know, closer to you. So you probably have to go even further away. Mm. Once you're that far away, your planes don't count anymore, they can't run effective sorties, you know, you don't have, it's just everything, the whole calculus changes, but the entire Persian Gulf is now off limits to US military ships and hardware. So, you know, it just, it it really changes the calculus very, very rapidly. And the concern here is that the neocons are just going to push until they get the war that they seem to want. And, you know, we're all unclear on what their actual aims are. Is it just you know grotesque self-interest cuz they have military contracts on the back door or is it is it something more ideological we don't know it doesn't matter yeah but it's it's certainly you know to me the frightening thing is to think how rapidly things will change geopolitically once the united states loses a few ships in in some sort of a skirmish like this
2: chris um You know, you've been you've been very much against the the fracking that we've for various reasons and you've talked about it on this show in the past. Has that been a big negative then in terms of our relationship with Saudi Arabia, I would imagine, because it's my understanding that China is now Saudi Arabia's is already Saudi Arabia's
5: largest client. Is that right? It's true, and China is now the world's largest importer of oil by far. The United States and China were neck and neck as recently as three years ago, but then we had our fracking revolution. Um, so we went from you know close to 6 million, 7 million barrels a day down to about 3 or 4 million barrels a day now. But China is importing 8 million barrels a day. And wow. uh, the two countries that are sort of neck and neck to vying for who's going to be the largest supplier of oil to China are Russia and Saudi Arabia so that's how we kind of understand the rest of this picture and the most interesting thing in this story before we get over to fracking is that china released a report commissioned uh by the state and it was run by what's called the beijing petroleum university and so this is a state-funded university all they study is petroleum Mm -hmm. and the report came out uh, just a few months ago and it said oh uh, China's going to face a peak in oil output from both conventional and unconventional sources. They had a run at their own shale reserves, such as they were, and discovered that they were too geologically molested to be useful. And it, the United States has world-class shale basins. They're not, we're not finding that they are replicated elsewhere in the world. Oh. Um, and so China discovered, to their dismay, that theirs weren't uh, useful. And they have some. They'll get some. They have a little smidge that they're expecting. So what it means is that their oil output is going to be falling and their oil imports are going to be climbing. And so this really translates into, roughly speaking, almost doubling of oil imports over the next 10 to 12 years. Now, little context, Jay, this means that by my calculations, China's going to be importing close to 30 to 40 percent of all available oil for export in the world. That's not going to happen we that that's just that's that's you know who, who's not going to get oil at that point in time is the question we'd have to ask and and so you know now we have to say well if that's not going to happen how does this resolve two ways dramatic very very dramatic price spikes or war mm. boy it's not a very uh, it's not a very hopeful outlook
2: there chris um, I'm not so sure. I'm I'm happy to have you on the show, <laughs> but but we have to face reality. And this is what it's. I mean, so what should we be doing now about it? With just a few minutes left here, what 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 is this going to mean? First of all, it seems to me that the dollar could be toast. We may be looking at a dollar that that. I mean, how are they? It's are they going to hyperinflate this thing to try to make you know? How's the government going to pay for all the? all of the promises it's made to
5: Americans, for example, old people, you know, what's going to happen? Well, you know, we're at that stage of the story. Remember that this is why context is essential. This isn't like we just suddenly got to this point. What happened was we went off the gold standard in 1971 and it's just been an absolute ridiculous, you know, um, set of policy errors ever since that are founded on this, this really dumb idea that you could, grow your debts at twice the rate of your income. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's the underlying problem here, right? Or predicament, I should say. And so when you ask the question about, you know, how do we pay all these underfunded or even unfunded pension liabilities for right. retirees? The answer is we won't. Not mm-hmm. You can't pay them off in current dollar terms because in, just in the United States, in current dollar terms, when we add up all the IOUs and debts in one spot, so that's liabilities plus debts. The United States is standing at 1100% debt and liabilities to GDP. 1100%. That's Nobody's incredible. so the only question that I'm asking my subscribers and, and listeners to resolve is this, who's going to eat the losses? That's the question. Yeah. Right. So, you know, you know, as well as I do, the Federal Reserve is going to try and inflate their way out of this, but they're looking at the wrong measures. They're looking at prices. Prices and inflation are separate things. Prices are the symptom. Inflation is when the monetary system starts heating up and and you have more, you know, um, credit and and credit instruments flooding through the system. That's the source. Um, But, you know, if we get this oil price spike that I think is coming in two to three years, uh, the Federal Reserve will count victory because prices are spiking. But those will be misery. For the people yeah. involved, because that's actually going to be stagflation at that point, not the inflation yeah. that they were, were hoping for.
2: Right. And rates are rising now, as, as Alistair McLeod explained on the show recently, that you know gives the banks all kinds of reason to, to sell their treasuries and to put money into the system more. So we have already, I think, some concerns about rising price levels. Um, and I don't know what your thoughts are, but it seems to me that with all this high-powered money still sitting in uh, in the Federal Reserve system in the banking system since 2008 2009, uh, that there is there could be a, a an awful lot of hurtful inflation heading our way in the not too distant
5: future. I'm I'm fearful of that. Do you share that concern? Well, yes, and 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 it's going to happen. I think because we have to understand that derivatives, currency, stocks, bonds—they're all just claims on actual wealth. And those claims have just gone through the roof when we look at how much you know, currency and currency equivalence has been flooded and printed and pushed into the system. At the end of the day, none of those have any value to us unless we can buy something with it. For now, yep. everybody's happy thinking, hey, I, I have increasing claims in, in a financial sense. But, you know, inflation happens and hyperinflation particularly happens when people suddenly decide, oh, oh, I don't actually want the, the, the claim on the thing. I need the thing. Right. Yep. And yep. so all that money starts flooding over and discovers the door is really small, and there's only so many pieces of land for sale, and there's only so much barrels of oil on the market, and there's only so much gold that's that's available for sale, and all of that. And so that's every great hyperinflation has just been that moment when people woke up and went, "Oh, I need to be over there, <laughs> not here." Yeah. And and so that's that's you know my greatest criticism of the central banks is that they've they've just absolutely pushed. The, the markers of wealth into the stratosphere without any underlying appreciation that it's real wealth that we care about, not fantasy wealth. Yeah, indeed. Well, Chris, we're out of time, unfortunately. I want to tell my
2: listeners, though, that that they must go to peakprosperity.com because you have a lot of ideas. You've talked about it over the years, how people can protect themselves. And it's not just buying gold, although that's one of the things that I think you you very much gold and, and other tangible assets, but also other things you can do to try to prepare yourself for the times when Things aren't going to be so good. We've had, we've had quite a party, quite an orgy in a way, I think, since we went off the gold standard. Um, and, but, you know, it's coming home to roost, it seems to me, Chris, pretty
5: soon. So well, It does, and thanks for that, Jay. And, and, yes, we talk about eight forms of capital, financial capital, of course, important, but other ones really important to being resilient and weathering the storms that we think are coming.
2: Absolutely. So it's peakprosperity.com, folks. Go there be sure to take advantage of of all that Chris has to offer. Chris and and his partner, Adam Taggart, too, a very important part of this story. So thanks, Chris, for being with us. It's really a pleasure having you with us again, even though... Uh, what you're telling us we may not want to hear We've, we better we better prepare and the only way to prepare is to know what is coming our way to know the truth and the truth will set you free somebody said a long time ago thanks <laughs> that's, so much that's excellent. you're welcome alright folks well th- that is all the time we have this week next week Brian Groves of Genesis Metals will be with us Jeff Clark of goldsilver.com and hopefully Michael Oliver will be back as well to talk about his technical analysis of the markets uh, until then goodbye and God's blessings to you